Thank you for being here this morning on this Lord's Day. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 20. So if you take your copy of the scriptures and open them to the book of Revelation, it has been quite the ride, and we are nearing the end, finally, of our adventure in the book of Revelation. Please continue to pray for the group that's going to Israel as they are actually on their way right now up to Detroit to fly out. And continue to pray for our church, pray for those in our church who are going through challenges, through sorrows, through difficulties. We are the body of Christ, and it behooves us as believers to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another. That is the beauty of this institution that Christ has made, that we can encourage one another and, and lift up one another as we walk through this life and each run our own race. Revelation 20 Beginning at verse 1, I'm going to read the first six verses. Revelation 20, beginning at verse 1, we read these words. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, And bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. And for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, it is a privilege once more, as a collective group of redeemed people, bought by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to once more on this, what we often refer to as the Lord's Day, meet together. And we do so because of our joy that we have in the salvation we have received and because of our desire to exhort and encourage one another as we sojourn in this life. And we recognize that you have, in your providence, directed our steps to where we are For many of us, those steps have directed us towards sorrow. For many of us, those steps have directed us towards grief and pain. And yet, as I was even reminded this morning of by a dear friend, that behind your frowning providence, you hide a smiling face. Lord, today in our text, we see some mysteries in your purpose and in your plan, perhaps, that we just don't quite understand. Nevertheless, your word is our food, and we have gathered together to feast upon it 
and to find our souls refreshed so that as we go into this next week, should you tarry, that we might rejoice in what we've heard and be sustained by the truths contained in it. So I ask that you would move me out of the way and help each person, including myself, in this room to see and hear you through your word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So it does seem as though sometimes I end up getting the text where I have to preface my sermon by saying this is one of the most debated texts in all of the Revelation. But somehow I find myself doing that once again today. The text we have today is Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, and uh, the first three verses are not necessarily as debated, although they, they most certainly are. It is the next few verses, verses 4 through 6, that are hotly debated, and uh, many theologians throughout church history, and even to this day, have very different views on what these verses mean. When you look at these verses, you realize that they talk about two things. The first three verses are talking about Satan and how Christ will bind him. He will send a messenger angel to bind him in what is referred to in the King James as a bottomless pit. You may perhaps have a different translation that says something to the effect of an abyss. The next three verses, verses four through six, talk about a kingdom or what we refer to as a millennium because it refers to a 1,000-year reign, a reign that includes not only Jesus upon the throne, but also those who were witnesses of Jesus. And we'll talk about those people in just a moment. The question about this reign, though, is what is it? When is it? What does it look like? We as Christians are looking forward to the day, and one of the things we talk to each other over and over again, I hope, is that we can't wait till Jesus comes back. We just cannot wait till Jesus returns once more. And we can echo the words of John only a couple chapters later towards the end when he says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what we all want. But there's a lot of stuff between now and when the end of Revelation happens. And one of the things that is referred to is in our verses today, referring to this 1,000-year reign or what we often refer to as the kingdom or millennium. And as I said, it is very debated because a lot of people do not interpret these verses exactly the same. In fact, just to give you an idea of how debated these are, there are actually three main views that people over church history have read these verses and come to conclusions on. There are different views of the millennium, and the first one is that of the view millennialism. The word awe meaning not or none, and millennium referring to the thousand-year reign or, in shorthand, the kingdom. And people who talk about millennialism essentially say that the book of Revelation is not intended to be a prophetic calendar, as it were. Instead, it's referring to the invisible kingdom and spiritual realities that we see all around us. And when they, ref- when they come to these verses in Revelation 20, and they see that there's supposed to be a thousand-year reign, they come to the conclusion that, well, it can't refer to an actual kingdom because the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book. It's a book with great mysteries, and, and we don't always understand the meaning behind the symbolism that it has. And so when they see the word 1,000 years, they don't believe it's talking about a time. They believe it's talking about a, a, a system or, or, if you will, a period as, as opposed to a specific 1,000 years. And those who hold to this say 
that there really isn't going to be a coming kingdom. There's not necessarily going to be a day in which Jesus will sit upon the throne in Jerusalem and that we're looking forward to that day. Instead, Jesus is sitting on his throne right now. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's sitting upon his throne, ruling and reigning. And here's where they get a little difficult as far as where they agree on what the kingdom looks like. Some of them say that the kingdom is actually happening in our hearts, that we as Christians look at these verses, and it talks about the souls of those who were beheaded for the witness of Christ and the word of God and didn't worship the beast, and that they lived and reigned with Christ, that really that is us right now. You sitting in the pew right now are reigning with Christ in your heart. And one day you will go to be with him and you will realize the full effect of his kingdom when you are with him. There's another view, and this view is often called post-millennialism. And this idea is that the kingdom of Christ will be ushered in over a period of time by us, the church. And this view really was popularized around 200 years ago. And essentially, it means that we as Christians are called to influence the culture. Jesus told us as Christians, we are supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to be an influence in the culture. And so others have looked at these verses, and we see how over the course of the book of Revelation that things seemingly are getting worse, but that the, the kingdom, the, the, true, the true king, Jesus, and his adherents, Christians, are slowly but surely influencing the culture and eradicating the idea of a beast or the idea of the Antichrist and are bringing in, eventually, the kingdom of God, which is why many people believe that it's so important for us to be involved in the culture as Christians because we need to influence it and we need to prepare this land and this, this earth, if you will, for the kingdom of Christ so that one day, as the church continues to have influence through the spirit-enabled gospel, we will see the world get better and better and eventually prepared to receive her one true king, Jesus Christ. The third view is one that you've probably heard of, and that is called premillennialism. Premillennialism. And this teaches that the kingdom of Christ will come after the tribulational period and fully inaugurate his earthly kingdom. Basically, what this means is that there, right now, is no kingdom happening, that Jesus is at the throne with God, and that we as Christians are in the church age, but we're looking forward to the day when Christ will come again and establish his kingdom. But it won't happen until the tribulational period happens, a very real seven-year period that we've been talking about over the course of Revelation, and that once that period happens, those seven years, Jesus Christ will come triumphantly, as Pastor Dixon preached from chapter 19, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will take the beast, and he will take the false prophet, and he will cast them into hell. And that, as we'll see in a moment, that he is going to bind Satan. And then for literally 1,000 years, Jesus will reign on the throne in Jerusalem, in the Holy Land, where our, our group is going right now. Jesus will reign from there for 1,000 years. And that the people there in that kingdom will be made up of Christians but over the course of those thousand years, the requirement will still be the same for salvation, that those who are born who do not know Christ will need to believe and embrace the gospel of Jesus. And over a course of time, they won't. They won't believe him, which is why there will be one final rebellion, as we'll see uh, tonight. 
This, this view is referred to as premillennialism because what they say is that Jesus will return before the millennium starts. Whereas in the other ones, either there is no millennium or they're saying that Jesus will return after the millennium, which is a period of time in which we are in now. And I don't have time to get into all the nuts and bolts of this or to fully defend why I take the position I do. But Pastor Dixon and myself take the position of premillennialism. That there will literally be a tribulational period of seven years in which there will be an antichrist and there will be his false prophet, and they will deceive people, and they will persecute Christians, and that right now, in no, in no real sense, is there a true kingdom of God yet, even though Christ is reigning, he is ruling and reigning over his creation, but the full realization of that, where he's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, won't happen till after that tribulational period. I think that this explains the text in Revelation 19 and the text before us today. So with that in mind, that Christ will establish a real reign where he will reign as king, the true king, the one holy king, what do we need to take away from this text today? And I, to be honest with you, as I was trying to prepare this message, every time I, I work on sermon notes, the question I always ask is, how will this feed the flock of God? Because Peter says that shepherds or elders are supposed to feed the sheep. And Jesus told Peter himself, remember when Peter denied Jesus and then Jesus says, you love me three times? And he says, yes, I love you. That Jesus told him over and over again, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. As an under-shepherd, as a pastor, a shepherd, I realize that my responsibility is not simply to stand up here and talk to you for 30, 35, 40 minutes each Sunday. That my responsibility is to feed the sheep. Because as I said The word of God is food for us. It's food for our souls. It's intended to to nourish us spiritually. So as I was reading this text, I was trying to think through how would this feed us? How would this feed me? How would this feed you? And one of the things that came to my mind was the fact that this is the beginning of the end. When we look in just a moment at Satan being bound... This is God finally exercising dominant authority and sovereign authority in a way that completely prohibits Satan and his influence. But he's not doing that right now. And we know that. We live in a world that's fallen and broken. We live with our own pains. We live with our own faults. We, we know how weak we are. And we know that we have not only our flesh that pulls us away from what we should do, but we also have the world and its enticements tugging at our hearts, trying to distract us from the truth of God's word. And of course, Satan himself is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's looking at each of us and he wants us to be destroyed. He doesn't want our soul to be nourished by the food of God's word. And so when we go away from this place, it can be wonderful meeting together as believers, but then we go into the world where we are amongst co-workers who don't know Christ. We're amongst classmates who don't know Christ. We're amongst family or friends who don't know Christ, and it frankly can be discouraging. We can go back and we face the trials and the testings of, of life on top of the temptations and enticements of our own sinful inclinations, and it can just be wearying. 
But one of the things that really encouraged my heart in this text is that one day Satan won't have free reign anymore. One day he will bind that old serpent, as he calls it in Revelation 20. One day he will remove the influence of Satan. And even though our text today doesn't say it, tonight it will. That Satan will be done. Completely. And we are going to receive a new body where we don't have the aches and pains of life, where we're not going to have a heart that still is bent towards sin, that we're not going to have Satan trying to steal the seed of the gospel from us, and we're not going to have the world's influence. One day it's going to be gone, but it's not here yet. And so what we must do is take heart, because even though it's not here yet, it's coming. It is coming. The coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he is going to bring the binding of Satan and he is going to inaugurate his righteous reign and his sovereign rule. It is going to happen. Sometimes, I'm just going to be totally honest with you, sometimes I wonder, is it going to happen? The scriptures say, people are going to mock and say, where's this Jesus? He hasn't been here for so long. You said he's going to come again, but we haven't seen him. Where is he? And sometimes I tend to think the same thing. Lord, it's been 2,000 years where are you? People are mocking your name. I'm tired of dealing with my own sin. He's coming. He will inaugurate his righteous reign and his sovereign rule so we can take heart. We can be encouraged to know it will happen. So let's take a look. There's two aspects of this coming reign of Jesus that I want us to see. I want us to see, first of all, the inauguration. Just like any kingdom, there's an inauguration. The king is set upon his throne. But the inauguration, or the beginning of this reign, we see not Jesus, we see an angel. Verse 1 says, I saw an angel come down from heaven. It's not the king of kings coming yet. It's almost as if there is, there's one bit of business that has to happen first. Jesus Christ has, has come. He has destroyed the beast. He has destroyed the, the false prophet and those who were following him and had taken his mark. But now, instead of the beginning of the procession beginning with Christ, we see an angel. And this angel is not alone. He has something in his hand. He has two things, in fact. It says in verse 20 that he has the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. I do believe that what we are seeing here is symbolism. I mean, I, I do believe this is a symbol of power and authority of Jesus Christ, that this angel is coming and he will incarcerate Satan. The angel comes and he has these two items, and I believe that the, the symbolism or the, the idea behind them, the significance, is that as he holds the chain, he holds the power of God to withhold from Satan his freedom. That no longer will Satan be permitted to roam to and fro throughout the earth seeking whom he may devour. That this chain will bind him so that he cannot move anymore. And after being bound, that he will then be cast into a great bottomless pit. For that is what the key belongs to. And that the key is a reference not only to the fact that he will be incarcerated and will no longer be permitted in God's sovereignty to do anything he's been doing but that he also has a time limit. Satan cannot determine when he will be freed. 
Only the person with the key can. And the key to the bottomless pit has been entrusted by the king to his messenger, this angel. But let's look at the defendant. Who is the defendant going before this judge? Verse 2. He's referred to as the dragon, the old serpent, the devil, Satan. All of these are titles throughout Scripture he has been known as. And here, if you are paying attention, you'll notice that these last few chapters of Revelation are actually going to look very much like the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And I believe that that's intentional in the mind and heart of God. That he wants us to see that at the beginning, God had made something to be a certain way. And in the end, he will make it right again. Satan, he is the adversary, the devil. He's not for us. He's not our friend. Anybody who wants to worship Satan is doing so at their own peril. Satan has wanted from the beginning to overthrow God's reign. He says, I will be like the Most High. I will set my throne above his throne. And when he saw the creatures that God had made in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, he disguised himself as a serpent, doing everything he could to undermine anything God had said. Because all that mattered to him was that people fell down and worshipped him. And so how did he begin? He began by questioning God's word. Did God really say... Did he? And of course, Eve says, well, of course he did. He told us we're not supposed to eat of the tree. He told us we're not even supposed to go near it or touch it lest we die. And Satan says, you kidding? He's withholding something from you. He knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you're going to be just like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. And Eve in the deception, looks at the tree and she sees that it's desirable to make one wise, that it's lovely, that she takes of the fruit and eats. And Paul tells us in, in 1 Timothy that Eve was deceived. She genuinely believed what Satan was telling her, what the serpent was telling her. But there was one person who was not, and that was Adam. Adam knew full well what was happening, and when Eve handed him that fruit, he knew that what he was about to do in taking a bite of that fruit was an absolute violation and a shake in the face of God. But he did it anyways. And from that point on, Satan's influence continued on, and he was doing everything he could to attack and hurt and malign the people of God throughout history until the point when the Son of God, the King, the future King, came to earth himself. And Satan said, aha, this is my chance now. And God's spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, the devil, the adversary. And Satan does everything he can to cause Jesus Christ to sin or to worship him or to lack the trust in who God is. But in all of it, Jesus was faithful, a faithful high priest not unaware with the pains and testings that we experience. He survived the test, unlike Adam. And then throughout church history, we see the influence of Satan. We see martyrs, people who had their heads cut off because they wanted to follow Jesus. People who were beaten, who were maligned, all because of the influence of this Satan, this dragon. The defendant is not a friend. 
His crime against the king is egregious, and he deserves to be punished. So what happens? The angel in verse 2 lays hold on the dragon. He grabs him. In verse 3, he casts him into the bottomless pit. This is the sentence. You have violated the command of the king of kings and the lord of lords. Therefore, you have forfeited your right into the kingdom. You have forfeited your right to be a servant of God. For at one point, angel was an angel. Satan was an angel who looks even now like an angel of light because of what he once was. He's forfeited that right, and his sentence is to be cast into the bottomless pit or the abyss, and that he is shut up. And it says in verse 3, they set a seal upon him. This was like the seal of the king's signet ring. You'll remember in the book of Daniel, when the Daniel is cast into the lion's den and they put the, the stone across the face and the king put his seal on it saying nobody else could do this. Nobody else could break this seal. Or when Jesus himself is put into the grave and the Roman soldiers put the stone in front of the, the mouth of the grave that there is a, an official seal put on it saying no one is allowed to release or enter this chamber. So it is with this bottomless pit. Satan is cast into it, and the King of kings and Lord of lords sets his seal upon it, saying, this is my official pronouncement of judgment upon you. You're not getting out. But there's an intriguing phrase at the end of verse 3. He set a seal upon him so that he should deceive the nations no more. He will no longer have influence. But till the thousand years should be fulfilled. Now I'm getting nervous. Because if I were the Lord, in my planning, I would say, hey, let's get Satan, bind him up, throw him in the bottomless pit, close the door, lock it, throw away the key. I don't want his influence anymore. That's the end of him. That's what I would want. I would imagine that's what you would want too. But in God's mind, in his matchless wisdom, he doesn't do that. In fact, it's even more startling. As I was reading this, I latched onto one word. Verse 3, he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he, this next word, must be loosed a little season. Must? Really? He has to be released? Lord, why couldn't you just bind him, throw him into the bit, abyss, throw away the key? Why must he be released? And frankly, I wrestled with that. And I hope you do too. Because there's a lot of us who want to see the justice of God on display and that Satan, for all of his wickedness and all of his actions, would finally be thrown into the judgment forever. But that's not in the mind of God. In the mind of God, it is of a necessity that Satan be released again. And that specifically he be released at the end of that kingdom reign of Jesus. What will this kingdom reign be like? It's going to be featuring the world's first ever perfect king. Jesus, the pure, 
the righteous. And he's going to reign for a thousand years. And yet, there will still be people after a 1,000 year reign who when Satan is released are going to believe him and they're going to follow him after the perfect reign of the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. I think this is just me guessing. I don't know this for certain. But I wonder if the reason why Satan must be released one more time is to show us one more time just how bad we are. To show us one more time just how holy and right his wrath is upon the children of disobedience. One more time to see that even when we see the Holy One of Israel on his throne, our hearts apart from Christ, are still so black, still so evil, that after 1,000 years of a perfect reign, our hearts will still, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, our hearts will still want Satan. Our hearts will still want the opposite of that king who reigned so faithfully and rightly for 1,000 years. God is revealing to us just how evil and wicked we are apart from the saving work of Jesus. In that 1,000-year reign, it will be marked by people having children. And those children will have children, and their children will have children, which means that these will be people unless they believe in Jesus Christ as their savior for their sins, will experience the judgment of God. So how is it that Satan will be able to deceive people? Because we know that it's not possible for Satan to deceive the very elect. The reality is, is that even in a perfect reign, when Jesus is on earth reigning for a thousand years, there will still be people who don't want him there will still be people who are not faithful. People who will refuse and reject the gospel. There may be people in this very room who are amongst the people of God but don't know him. And the reality is, apart from believing the gospel of Jesus, you are susceptible to believing the lies of Satan. And he wants nothing better than to do everything he can to snatch away the seed, like the parable of the sower Jesus gave. When the seed goes on the ground, the birds come and lift it up, and what does Jesus say? Satan comes and he snatches the gospel seed away. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy your faith. Thankfully, one of my most favorite passages in all of Scripture is in 1 Peter. And this was one that God used to help me see that no matter what happened, as I continued to be faithful and as I continued to embrace the gospel, he would protect me, as in 1 Peter 1, where Peter writes these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, or you could say a living hope, 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, what have we been, what is this living hope that we've been saved to? What are we looking forward to? To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And this verse is especially precious. Verse five, who are kept by the power of God. That word kept, you may have a newer translation, is the idea of being protected. You're guarded. You are guarded by the power of God through faith to salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Satan will do everything he can to deceive the followers of God. And the followers of God are not perfect and they will fail. They will sin. We all do. We all will sin. But we'll never lose that faith in Christ. It's protected by him. You won't lose it. You have it. It's guarded by God. So no matter what Satan does, he will not be able to snatch away that faith if it is genuine, real faith. How do you know if it's genuine, real faith, though? That's what the next verse is. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though, now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. You're going through trials. You're struggling. Why? So that, verse 7, the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The testings and trials we experience are meant to test and prove the genuineness of our faith in Jesus. If you can faithfully persevere through your grief, through your sorrow, through your hardship, and continue to say, Lord, though you slay me, yet will I trust you. And you cling to Christ in the storms of life. God says not only that he will protect your faith from Satan and anything that would take it away, but that he also is proving to you the genuineness of it. It's not fake. It's real. Those in the coming kingdom who have not embraced Jesus, will be susceptible to the deceptions of Satan when God releases him. And while in my finite human mind, I can't understand entirely why God would let it happen that Satan should be released, or even that he must, I do know this, that God's wisdom is far greater than mine or yours, and that Ultimately, if you ask the question of why must Satan be released, you can keep going back and ask the question, why was Satan permitted to do any of his evil in the first place? We don't know entirely the answer to that, except for the fact that in some way, God is receiving the greatest glory possible, and somehow he's producing the greatest possible good. So the inauguration of this reign will be the incarceration of Satan But then comes the rain in verses four through six. And who is in this in this reign of Jesus? Verse four, John says, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. Who's the they? And judgment was given to them. Again, who's the they? 
the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast in either his image, neither had received his mark upon their forehead or in their hands. These people are given an elevated status within his administration and kingdom. Jesus says, you endured the sufferings, the pains, the trials, the griefs of the attacks of Satan and the Antichrist and his false prophet and of sin and the world. And many of you were beheaded, so much so that it, back in, the, in chapter 5 of this same book, John says he sees that there were the prayers of these saints who said, How long, Lord? How long are you going to wait to exact justice for us? How long do we have to wait until we will finally see that our blood that was spilt is avenged? And at that time, back in chapter 5, the Lord says to them, just wait. Just wait. There is coming a day. And that day came in Revelation 19. But he goes a step further in chapter 20. And he says, not only have I avenged you, but I will exalt you. I will lift you up. You will be in a throne in my kingdom and you will live where once you were persecuted and you were beheaded and died. Now you will live and you will be elevated to a status where you will reign with me for a thousand years. What exactly is the judgment that happens? Well, like I said the kingdom will be filled with people who are not saved. And over the course of those thousand years, judgment will still be necessary. And it's as if Jesus is creating this administration of those who were faithful to him to the point of death. Now he is exalting them to a place where they will exercise judgment in his kingdom. And they were faithful to him and they will reign with him, it says, for a thousand years. What about the rest of the dead, though? says that these, these saints who were beheaded, they were dead, but now they're alive again. What about the rest of the dead? John answers that question in chapter, in chapter 20, verse 5. The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. This is the first not only in chronology, but this is the first in preeminence. This is important. This resurrection is the one you want to be a part of. You know why? Because the next one's not good. At the end of chapter 20, the next one is the great white throne judgment where God will bring before him those rebels who resisted the gospel call, who resisted his rule and reign. He will bring them before his bar where he will judge them righteously and in wrath. That's the second resurrection. The first resurrection are believers. They're saints. The second resurrection are unbelievers and they will be resurrected not to life, not to life but to eternal wrath and death. So John concludes then this wonderful reign, this description of this kingdom with verse 6, with a benediction. And there have been lots of benedictions over the course of this book, but this one is one of the blessed ones, for he says, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Those who have part in the first resurrection are those who have loved God even though they have not seen him, like Peter describes. On such, on these people who are part of that first resurrection, the second death has no power. Satan has no influence. There will be no more sin dealing with them, for they will have received new bodies 
and they will be under the reign of a perfect king that they have longed for. And they shall act in his kingdom like priests, both to the Father and to Jesus Christ, his son. And they'll, again, he emphasizes reign with him a thousand years. This goes back to what Jesus said. Everything in Jesus' teaching is upside down. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves shall be abased. Everything in Jesus' kingdom is opposite. Whereas during the Antichrist reign, he was exalting himself. And the beast or the false prophet is making an image of the beast to exalt the beast. They're exalting themselves. And what happens to them? They're brought low. The saints of God during all of that time have been persecuted and maligned and beaten and scorned and eventually killed, abased in the eyes of the world, only to, in God's administration and economy, be raised and exalted. This is our God. This is what we are longing for. This is what I can't wait for. I'm tired of my sin. I'm tired of the world and its enticements. I'm tired of Satan and his desire to sift me like wheat, to sift you like wheat, to sift this church like wheat, to sift the world like wheat. I'm sick of it. But there's coming a day when his influence and reign will be done. There will be a momentary time when he must be released In the wisdom of God, he must be released. But praise be to God, that will be a momentary time. And then, as we will see tonight, it's done. He will be done for. It will be over. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more pain or grief or death. So we can take heart. Because while we endure this world below, we do so with the hope Not a wishful hope, not a I really hope that's going to happen, but a confident expectation that God will do exactly what he said he will do. He will eradicate sin. He'll eradicate Satan. He'll eradicate the rebels who have resisted his reign. And he will bring about his glorious kingdom, ruled and reigned by the sovereign righteous one. And one day we will be with him. So take heart. It's, it's hard now, but one day the upside-down teachings of Jesus are going to be fully realized, and we will rejoice in that. Lord, I praise you that you can give us such comfort and hope when we know our weaknesses, when we know in the everyday walk of life our own struggles and trials I thank you that in your wisdom, you tell us to trust you. You are the king of glory, as we read earlier. You are the sovereign one, the holy one of Israel. And you will not forever allow evil to reign. One day it will be over. I pray for any in this room who have not heard of the gospel of Jesus or who have heard it and are resisting it even to this moment, that you would help them to see the peril they are in. 
And for those of us, Lord, who are trying to live faithfully, not perfectly, but trying to do what is right, trying to yield to the Spirit's control, trying to exalt Christ in our lives, trying to fulfill the Great Commission, trying to be faithful till we see you. Encourage our weary hearts and help us to know that you are good and you are wise and that we can trust in you completely. Be exalted in our midst, for we prayed in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.